Hello and welcome to another weekly podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. If you're in the Mankato area, join us every Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at MankatoHilltop.org. Best of all, God is with us. Let's turn now to uh, what we're talking about today. And these are the five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. We are on part three, which means we're looking at Ruth. And as we, as we looked in for week one, we talked about Tamar, who carried on the line of Judah. Week two, we looked at Rahab, who was a prostitute and who was also one of the heroines of the Battle of Jericho. And today, in week three, we'll look at Ruth. She is someone who is the enemy of the people, who actually then got to carry on the lineage, lineage of Jesus. And this is um, one of the reasons we're reading all these Old Testament texts is to draw us into a closer relationship with how Jesus came to be where he is, how God sent his very own son to now reconcile the world to himself. But all along the journey, going all the way back to the very beginning, all along the journey, there were men and women who were a foreshadowing of what God was going to do. And Ruth is one of those women as well. Now, we have to keep one of these important interpretive lenses around us as we read this. And this is, goes back to some of the work we did earlier this fall, talking about uh, how not to read the Bible. And the fourth point in that one was, all Scripture points to Jesus. That's a faithful way to read it. So even when we're reading a, a Scripture passage in the Old Testament about Ruth, there's something about this story that's going to point to Jesus, and you'll hear a little bit about that today. Ruth is a widow. Her husband is dead. So right away, you should know that widows automatically mean vulnerability because of the leave right marriage, because of the patriarchy of the time. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, is also a widow, and all of her sons are dead. So here we have two women, Naomi and Ruth, who are in a vulnerable position. Naomi was living in the land of Moab, even though she was an Israelite, and Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth, not wanting to leave Naomi, travels with her. Now, it's already kind of a little complicated situation. You're following in your mother-in-law's footsteps. I know that's what we all want to do, right? But no, I love my mother-in-law. She's watching online. I love you, Jill. You're great. <laughs> No, but just automatically just to acknowledge, like, it's, it's a little bit of weird family dynamic because Ruth in this situation would normally go back to her family of origin, yet she decides to follow Naomi, decides to stick with this other woman. Why? Well, God's got some plans for them. Initially, Ruth, Naomi tries to encourage Ruth to go back to her homeland of Moab, but Ruth's going to have none of it. She says she's bound to Naomi, and she's going to go wherever Naomi goes. Now, we might not understand exactly what this is like reading this today, but in the ancient context, Ruth, she's an enemy. The Moabites are bad, bad news. The Ammonites and the Moabites are descendants of Lot in Genesis, and this is all challenging because Lot was part of Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole saga in Genesis, and so Ruth was one of those people over there, the ones we don't like to talk about. 
In fact, here's what it says about in, in Deuteronomy. It says this, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So Moabites are not looked on with favor. In fact, it kind of just says like, nope, you can't have any part in what God is doing here. You can't be part of the Israelite assembly. But one thing that should be starting to become clear now in this series is that God upends all of our expectations. Every expectation we have about what God will do or what people are good or bad, God will do what God is going to do. And oftentimes that turns the situation on its head a bit. And even Ruth, an outsider, a Moabite, someone who's on the enemy's team, is now listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Again, people reading this in the ancient first century context would have saw Ruth's name and said, what? What? A Moabite? Well, let's, look, uh, let's read Ruth's story and find out where God's grace is at work in this one. And before we read this chapter, I need to let you know of a couple things. This reading is full of sexual innuendo. It's full of it. You might miss it completely because we're reading a translation of this. In Hebrew, where it says she uncovers his feet, it actually means she uncovers his lower body. Read between the lines. Feet is a euphemism for genitalia in the Hebrew language. We don't have time to get into this, but I could show you passage after passage after passage where genitalia is mentioned, but the Hebrew word that's put in there is feet. Like when it says women will give birth, that the afterbirth will come out of her feet. You and I know that's not how this works, right? Okay? So there's lots of places in the Hebrew where feet is a substitute for genitalia. Also, threshing floor is really closely related to prostitution. That's where prostitutes would hang out and try to uh, be in contact with the workers and things like that. And here, and lastly in Hebrew, they never really come right out and say, hey, they had sex. It doesn't say that in the text at all. That would be too forward, too on the nose. But actually, what they do talk about in what they refer to as sex in the Bible is they say to know someone. When you know someone, that means you've been joined together in sexual intimacy, that you know someone. So listen to where Naomi says, don't let him know you, Ruth. That's what she's saying. Know him in that sense of the word. Make yourself known. Here's one other thing to point out. In our modern context, um, a lot of times people have approached this biblical text in particular with Ruth as with lots of like what I would call toxic purity culture. And some people reluctant uh, as modern readers are reluctant to see anything sexual in the text at all. If you go to any seminary, talk with any Old Testament biblical scholar, they'll tell you this is exactly what's going on. But in our modern context in America, we've looked at some of these texts and say, no, 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 it means exactly what it says. It's, it's his feet. It can't mean anything other than just his feet. See what in the Hebrew it says feet. Re just writing off all of what uh, biblical interpreters know about this. So we, you maybe have heard of this story before, and all of this stuff has been glossed over because there's a tendency to do that. 
But to me, that misses the point of the gospel of this story. It really does. Okay. When we gloss over all that stuff, what the text actually says and means, then it's like glossing over the gospel of Jesus Christ. We try to then read it in some sort of like moralistic way. Like Ruth is saved because of how good she was and not because of her sexual impurity or something like that. Rather than the gospel that says we are saved in spite of our sexual maturity or anything of that nature. It's not God rewarding Ruth for being someone pure. It's God's grace moving in Ruth and Boaz's heart in a new way and saving them from that. God does not lift us up based on how good we are. In fact, it's just the opposite. God lifts us up in spite of any moral failings we have. That's the gospel good news. Okay, we're going to read the third chapter where all of this goes down. And you'll be able to pick up some of the reading. Read between the lines and see where some of the sexual innuendo is in the reading. Try to see if you can pick up little bits and pieces of it. Aaron, I'm going to let you advance the slides. Here we go. Ruth, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young woman you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich, poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am near kinsmen, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he acts as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then, as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the town. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. 
She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Holy Scripture. Ruth is a widow in a vulnerable position. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, working together with her, tries to come together with this scheme in order to get her out of her vulnerable position. In some way of looking at this, it's a way of her buying herself into this new way, this redemption that Ruth is seeking. It becomes a foreshadowing of what God's decisive plan for all of humanity is, how God is redeeming everyone buying them back and welcoming them into the fold. Ruth is a widow and a foreigner. She has no standing in the Israelite world. She has no hope because there is no male lineage for her to protect her. So her mother-in-law devises this plan for her to come under the protection of Boaz, to spread his wing over her and protect her as a faithful Hebrew man. Boaz is a faithful Hebrew man. And Ruth, after catching the eye of Boaz... I don't know if you notice in the text, what does she do? She gets all dolled up. Put on your best clothes, put on your best perfume. And then follows these instructions of her mother-in-law and goes to the place where Boaz is spending the night. She uncovers his bottom and lays next to him. And when she wakes up, or when he wakes up, he's surprised. Can you imagine? The word used for uncover here is important. It has the same base root as recover redeem, and restore. So not only is it this situation that's playing out between Ruth and Boaz, it's kind of a situation where Ruth is really saying, I need recovery, I need redemption, I need restoration. Who's going to provide that for me? And when we come to find out here through Ruth's story that the enemies of God are going to be redeemed and welcomed into the faithfulness of what God is doing in the world. Now, this expands God's hope for all people, hope for the Moabites, hope for all the nations. There is redemption for those that are outside the bounds of faith to be welcomed in to faith. And we start to see this story as actually part of God's grand narrative, starting in Genesis, working all the way through history. Reading Jesus, understanding, looking for Jesus in all of it. How God is continually calling people back to himself. Even those who might be uh, the enemy are being called back into the fold. And Ruth's story seems to me a part of this foreshadowing of how God will redeem the whole world in his son, Jesus Christ. He does that on the cross. When we, the people who are criminals, enemies, outsiders, outcasts, are welcomed into the fold of the faithful, and when we are reconciled through God and Jesus Christ, this is a foreshadowing of that same thing playing out between these two people. Now, how does it play out in the story here? Boaz becomes somewhat of a redeemer to Ruth. Because in the next couple of verses then, right after she goes and uncovers and says she is in need of rescue and redemption, Boaz says, he will be the person. I will act as next of kin. That's how it's translated in our English. That's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? I will act, I will act as your next of kin. What does that mean? Well, part of it is the leave right marriage. Part of it is, I will act as your next of kin and take you under my fold. 
So you will have protection in this family as part of a Levite marriage, but part of it also means I will help you find restoration with God and with the people. I will be the person who will welcome you into the fold. God then uses Boaz in this relationship that he has with Ruth to then be welcomed into the fold. Now Ruth and Naomi become part of the lineage of Israel through Boaz. And frankly, we should know this, right? How marriage works. Marriage definitely means that Ruth and Boaz had some sort of a sexual relationship. Here it happens even before they're married. Scandalous. Sometimes just like it happens in our world today. But let's look at this verse here in verse 10. Let's jump into the interpretive meaning of this for a minute. Verse 10. Boaz said to Ruth, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than your first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Interpreters have been trying to figure out exactly what Boaz is talking about here. It's not real clear in the text. Is he talking about, he's talking about something about blessedness. Because he uses the Hebrew word for blessedness. But we're not sure what that exactly means. Did Ruth perform an act of blessedness? Or does he mean that Ruth and her ancestors will be blessed because of this upcoming marriage between him and Boaz? Something that will then carry out the blessedness. But either way, there's a blessedness that surrounds this relationship. There's a blessedness that God is going to now use this relationship and use this marriage to bring healing from the past and move God's great redemptive story forward. So in this one moment and in this act, we see how God is using this action to work out the blessing in the life of Ruth. Okay, just a real quick check on all of this. Remember, Ruth is the enemy why are we rooting for her blessedness? Because God is breaking the expectations of just how his great love will work in all of these situations. And as offensive as this sexual relationship might be between Ruth and Boaz, here again, God is breaking in in the midst of our thinking and saying, I'm going to use this relationship. I'm going to use these people. I'm going to use these ones who are enemies. I'm going to use this to bring about my great purposes of love in this world. Which to me just makes me think, are we able to delight in the blessing of others? When we truly live a gospel-centered life, we should be able to. We are able to not let uh, those Packers fans get to us. I keep picking on the Packers. I'm sorry. I should pick on somebody else for a little while. But anyone who we see that is, that is against us, it's like, kind of like that all falls away in the eyes of God. Because now he's able to work in our heart. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about that. And if those things then do get to us, someone else receives a blessing and we go, oh, man. Are we truly living a gospel-centered life or are we living a more self-centered life? Worried about our care and our expectation. Boaz agrees to marry Ruth. But there are some housekeeping deals, uh, details to take care of. 
There's also another person who has the right to Naomi and Ruth's protection. This is how the story ends. We're not exactly sure who this is, someone who could be the next of kin to Naomi. And Boaz says to Ruth, hey, if he's not going to take care of you, I will take care of you. That's how that chapter ends. And we find out when we read in chapter 4 then that that person is unnamed. We don't know who he is. Could be some uncle or nephew or some male lineage who might have uh, access to their taking them under their wing. He says, nope, Boaz, you got it. You can take care of this. So some might read this story as just how faithful Ruth is in the midst of this, looking at the reward that she earned. But here again, if she had to earn it, that's not the gospel. That's not grace. That's not how God's love works. That's not to say that God doesn't desire our faithfulness. Absolutely. But it's to say that our faithfulness does not earn us anything. And here's the thing I take away from this whole story. We, we, all of us, we are like Ruth in this story. We are in need of redemption. We are in need of someone to purchase us back into the fold of the faithful, to come alongside and spread their wings over us and cover us. And we don't earn that spot through our actions. We receive it as a gift from Jesus. It's kind of like a wedding proposal. Christ is said to be the bridegroom of the church. So to be a part of the church is now to become wedded to Christ. So here in yet another sense in this, what might look on its face like a scandalous marriage, is actually a marriage of God's love. So the marriage is very similar to the marriage of God's love to us in the church a foreshadowing of Christ's redemption for all of us welcomed into the family of faith. And that might be a reading of Ruth you've not heard before, but I think it's faithful to the text. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. Don't forget to visit us online at mankatohilltop.org.